Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 14th September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott with Northern Exposure from north of the border. We're winning, Mike. Are we? I think we're winning because we're now starting to see the UK column message spreading. Let's have a look at this headline. And um, we've got to say Breitbart has just got it. So Delling poll, Boris Johnson has led a fascist coup against the United Kingdom. And uh, well, the opening was just brilliant. If that sounds like an exaggeration, just ask yourself how you'd have felt a year ago or even six months ago if you'd been told a British government's planning to institute a 10 p.m. curfew, ban gatherings of more than six people, impose daily immunity tests before you were allowed to go about your business, employ Stasi-like volunteer marshals to ensure public compliance, and warning that it might even have to cancel Christmas. So Breitbart is on the case, and um, we just add to that, people should remember that, of course, Boris is a mere puppet, and he's not going to be doing anything or leading anything unless the government of occupation in instruct him and in this role he's going to continue to deceive the public. David I'm just going to say there that well uh, just before you say that I just, just got a little bit to add here Brian right. because the news this morning of course is uh, the, the rule of six that we were talking about on Friday's program uh, now uh, Kit Malthouse uh, has uh, been on the Today program this morning saying that you know speaking of Stasi and so on that people need to report their neighbours for suspected breaches of the new rule of six yeah. uh, and uh, so new rules restrict indoor and outdoor gatherings. Yeah. So where does that leave us, David? Well, the Stasi says uh, you must report on a friend. You must turn your neighbour into the government and the state is everything. Um, and uh, yeah, didn't Poll absolutely nail it there. That was uh, just, on, just on the money. On the money. Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's move on to this because Boris yesterday uh, was uh, was writing in the uh, in the Telegraph. Uh, let's make the EU take their threats off the table and pass this bill. This is, of course, uh, the uh, the internal market bill, David. Uh, and uh, well, let's see what he uh, had to say here. Uh, here's a little bit of it. Uh, he began by saying it's now more than seven months since this country left the EU on January the 31st, and since then we've been working hard to build what I'm sure will be a great future relationship. Uh, he said we want to a thoroughgoing free trade deal. Uh, and he didn't say this, but I put it in square brackets because this is what's implied, as you'll see on the next slide, because uh, what's implied is we also want a deal on security, foreign policy and defence, but shh, don't say anything about it. You can't say anything about that. Very quiet. So what did he actually say? Well, he said, they, the EU Commission, know that there are ways in which we want to continue and even deepen our relations not just in trade. So that's as far as he's prepared to go on this issue. Um, but this is, uh, is the bit that really uh, struck me, Brian and David. Uh, but we cannot leave the theoretical power to cover, carve up our country, to divide it in the hands of an international organization. No, Boris, because you're doing a pretty good job of that already. Um, and uh, that is the case. Absolutely. The country is being taken apart from the inside. Boris Johnson is the puppet lead for this government of occupation. The agenda is to destroy uh, UK. David. This was spectacular. Right? I mean, deep in a relationship, not just in trade. Uh, yes, you're absolutely spot on there. That is code for European military union, if anything is. But the international, an international body with the theoretical ability to carve up our country. Wow. He's dangerously close to telling the truth about something there. He better watch himself. Uh, well, look, let's uh, let's come on to this then, because uh, you wanted to highlight a, 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 a statement here from Jeffrey Tucker. Yeah, Jeffrey Tucker, often insightful, takes a different view of things. A uh, very gentle, peaceful man. And uh, he's looking at uh, how we're managing the COVID crisis. And uh, he can't quite believe it. So he went looking for examples. And he wrote here, I thought it'd be... Good to quote lots of old gangsters amongst classical liberals on the topic of leaving disease for society, not the state to handle. And he went on, um, I, I have found very few comments. And the reason? No one has ever in history been so stupid as to lock down the whole economy. Uh, yes, Jeffrey Tucker is right. It, this is entirely new and this takes folly to an entirely 
new level. Absolutely. Uh, now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we uh, we covered, I think it was the first day back after the uh, summer break, the 31st of August, if anybody wants to go and look at this. Uh, we highlighted this document from the British government, consultation document, changes to human medicine regulations to support a rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, the co consultation closes at 11.59 on the 18th, which is uh, of, of September, which is, I guess is this Friday. Um, and it covers authorizing temporary supply of unlicensed product, civil liability and immunity, expanding the workforce eligible to administer vaccinations, promote vaccines, and uh, making provisions for wholesale de uh, dealing of vaccines. So let's just have a look at, uh, remind ourselves what it said in this. COVID-19 is the biggest threat this country has faced in peacetime history. Now, that's an important little statement because we'll be coming onto this a little bit later. Keep that in mind which is why the UK government is working to a scientifically led step-by-step -step action plan for tackling the pandemic, taking the right measures at the right time. Effective COVID-19 vaccines will be the best way to deal with the pandemic. Uh, it goes on to say the preferred route to enable deployment of a new vaccine for COVID-19 is through the usual marketing author authorization product licensing process. But a temporary authorization of the supply of an unlicensed vaccine could be given by the UK's licensing authority under Regulation 174 of the Human Medicines Regulations. Uh, and they say that a COVID-19 vaccine would only be authorised in this way if the UK's licensing authority was satisf satisfied there's sufficient evidence to demonstrate the safety, quality and efficacy of the vaccine. Unlicensed does not mean untested, they say. This temporary authorisation process exists to address the possibility that in certain situations of public health need, uh, the licensing authority may consider that the risk of uh, sorry, the balance of risk and benefit to patients justifies the temporary supply of the relevant vaccine pending the issue of a product license. The UK government wishes to clarify some important aspects of the legal regime relating to the civil liability of manufacturers uh, and suppliers in this context. The proposals would expand the workforce uh, that administers COVID-19 and flu vaccinations so that it also includes midwives, nursing associates, operating department practitioners, paramedics, physiotherapists, and pharmacists. So that's in a nutshell what uh, this covers. Uh, if you want to take part in the consultation, uh, there's a shortened link uh, which will take you to the page. Um, and uh, Brian, it's pretty spectacular the direction of travel here. Well, the government is just racing this stuff through, uh, Mike. We're, we are, we're not really given a choice. They're going to take body parts as well because most people don't realise uh, that's on the cards. Well, so, it's, it's, so, already, it's, it's already an opt-out issue now. It, well, indeed, if you go to the website, you can opt out, but it's pretty complicated to find your way through that little maze. So, yeah, we, we don't really own our own bodies anymore. They're the property of the government. The government can lock us up in our rabbit hutches. The government can vaccinate us. The government can have our body parts, presumably. Uh, David, briefly. I, I'm confused. Um, they said it's the greatest peacetime threat. Um, and it's all about the very high level of risk, and we're going to rush this vaccine out, even though it's not licensed, because of the risk. Number of people in Scotland under 45 without comorbidity alleged to have died because of um, uh, this disease, two. Two in the country. Uh, I'm sorry, where's, where's the risk? Where's this huge threat? Uh, sorry, David, they're lying. Uh, the, the instant reply is they are lying to us about the statistics and about the threat. Um, but uh, don't worry, uh, because justified by this major threat, we also have, uh, have this. Uh, we've got to get prepared for the NHS COVID-19 app. Uh, this is if you're a business, because, of course, if you're a business, you're going to be required to put, uh, you know, uh, various things up on your walls to be scanned by uh, phones so that people can automatically uh, put give the details to the NHS uh, track and trace uh, mechanism. So here is uh, um, our favourite health secretary, Matt Hancock, QR codes. So some people may have already seen QR codes up in the walls of various uh, restaurants and pubs and so on. Um, QR codes provide an easy and simple way to collect contact details to support the NHS track and trace system. Uh, and uh, he went on to say, we need to use every tool at our disposal to control the spread of the virus, including cutting edge technology, because, of course, this is, as David just said, uh, extremely virulent, extremely dangerous. And we've got to 
use every tool. It's just amazing how they drive forward with this policy agenda on the basis of nothing. On the basis of nothing, but it's a sort of unstoppable drive. Well, it, it's unstoppable enough unless enough people speak out on it. But we're just told what is to happen to us. There's no debate in Westminster. There's no debate between the ministers and the public. This is just policy and policy and policy being pummeled into the, to the public. David, it's a dictatorship. It is so clear to see what's happened here. We have a dictatorship in power. A dictatorship and uh, they're using uh, the lying name of science to justify the dictatorship. This is why they're, they're, they're imposing um, rules on a society that would otherwise never accept them. Uh, they're using a counterfeit science to do so. Um, David, I just wanted to, to run through a, a Twitter thread here that uh, from Law or Fiction um, from the 12th of September, every set of coronavirus regulations opens up with a statement that they are a proportionate response to the serious and imminent threat to public health, which is posed by the incidence and spread of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, in England. And they're going to say, but this has been dangerous shorthand. It misses out key words from Section 45C of the Public Health Control Disease Act 1984, uh, from where the regulations take the power. Section 45C refers to, quotes, incidents or spread of infection or contamination from the virus. Uh, so presence of the virus is not enough. The response must be to infection or contamination. If uh, Michael Yeadon uh, and uh, Carl Hennigan are correct, and the testing to date has been revealing presence traces of the virus that is not properly within the meaning of infection, uh, then Mr Hancock, being aware of this, uh, would not be able to make the declaration which he does against every set of regulations he considers uh, the restrictions and criminal offences imposed are proportioned to the threat posed by the infection. Uh, the consequence is that A, regulations made to date may have been made unlawfully. B, if Mr Hancock with this information considers them no longer necessary, he is, by those regulations, required immediately to revoke them. Uh, it is unacceptable if Mr Hancock cannot explain what is an infection. It is unacceptable that he misleads Parliament and the public by reference to cases which may have little relevance to levels of infection or potential for tr transmission. He and Sage must be pressed on this in public by influencers and MPs. Uh, and as for considering there to be a serious and imminent risk, uh, that will be the subject of another thread. So we we'll look forward to that uh, as to how the public is being coerced with threats based on misinformation. Um, and uh, uh, so that is, uh, that's a pretty strong statement there, David. It is, and I think it relates not only to the act under which all this legislation and uh, regulation has been rolled out, but also to international treaty that to close down the, the freedom of a society uh, on the grounds of, of disease as a threat, it must be proportionate. Uh, and the point uh, we were making earlier on is this is manifestly not proportionate, is grossly disproportionate. And grossly disproportionate means it is unlawful and illegal. Uh, indeed, and that's the point we're making from the very from the beginning start. of this, yeah. absolutely. Um, and just uh, on more or less, uh, well, let's have a look at this because uh, this is another tweet, this time from Welcome Trust. Uh, now, this was a promoted tweet, so uh, Twitter pushing this forward uh, to lots of people's timelines. Thank you to the person who sent this through to me. Uh, we're still underestimating the true impact of COVID-19, says Welcome Trust. How can we overcome the long-term effects of the pandemic? Uh, and then they attached a little... Uh, a little video clip to this um, and uh, while well, they're talking about what is the best case scenario if we have a vaccine and a treatment together and a rapid test as well then we'll be in a really strong position says Devi Sridhar from the University of Edinburgh uh, I thought you'd be impressed with that David but uh, there you go this is the type of thing that's being promoted uh, in Twitter uh, but of course any uh, counter narrative to that anybody pushing forward anything uh, opposite to that position, which may be more scientifically literate and accurate, David, uh, that gets silenced. Yes, yes. If you disagree with the official narrative, you are partly by definition, certainly by welfare, uh, Welcome Trust definition, a dangerous conspiracy theorist. The fact that you might have um, your scientific facts backing up everything you say, notwithstanding. Okay. Well, we're going to jump to a slightly different subject 
Or are we? Let's have a look at thing, as things unfold. As we research for UK Column News, it's just amazing the information that's coming in these days. And as we pull it apart, it's amazing where it takes us. So this is back in 2014. It's reply to a freedom of information request that was put into the Ministry of Defence by the Parliamentary Coordinator Campaign Against Arms Trade. And the meat of this was to ask for uh, details of external meetings of Susanna Mason, the Director of Exports and Commercial Strategy from May 2012 till December 2013. And the person is pushing very hard for details and uh, dates. Now, when we got the, uh, the actual reply itself, we had a good look through and it's a fascinating document. Now, I know it's very busy for our viewers on screen because we've got a list of dates, we've got a duration of meeting, we've got purposes of meeting, we've got attendees and we've got locations. So there's a lot of detail. And why was this document so interesting, particularly as it was focusing on uh, basically the international arms trade in the Middle East? Well, first of all, we can see the types of meeting taking place. Uh, we can also see that we've got a mixture of commercial people, people from the Cabinet Office, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, we've got senior military individuals. And also we've got the black lines indicating the government is very keen to redact or black out people it doesn't want the public to know about. So if we go on down through, we can see that this is the pattern. Um, uh, we've got some interesting meetings, surface competence exports, steering group meeting. Um, we've got uh, the Typhoon meeting, that one caught my eye, 45 minutes with Sir Jeremy Haywood, the Cabinet Secretary in that one. Uh, but a full list of attendees was not recorded. Mm -hmm. I always find that interesting when people are not recorded. And of course, if you go down on the page, you can see further people blacked out. But uh, let's pull out a few details and see what we've got. Well, we've got this one, a one hour UK export finance meeting with uh, British Aerospace. And what's interesting in this is that you've got some cab foreign and Commonwealth office people that are named, um, but we've got one who isn't. We've got a cabinet office person uh, who isn't named. Why should they be secret is my question. I don't think they should be secret from the British public. Is it because they're spooky? Pardon? Is it because they're spooky? Well, if they're spooky, why are they working directly with a label for the Cabinet Office? Why doesn't it say security services? And mm. then at least the public knows what's going on. Here's UK-UAE strategic partnership. Even da David Cameron is mentioned by name. So it's not that secretive when we get to meetings that our own Prime Minister was in with Sir Kim Darrett, the National Securities Advisor. But let's go on through. We've got a 45 minute where the purpose was simply not recorded by Julian Miller Cabinet Office. So very interesting to know what was taking place there. Uh, here we've got a one hour Cabinet Office meeting brackets French, where the attendees are simply not recorded. And I'm going to sort of put money on the table that that would have been one of the secret uh, meetings where we are dealing with EU defence uh, unification, mm -hmm. and that's what we were warning about and the meetings that uh, Cameron was having with Sarkozy at the time. We've got a one hour 50 minutes meeting, nearly two hours talking about women in the civil service, and that was conducted with Ernst & Young. So we wonder what the value for the public purse was out of that. But this is where it gets interesting because we discovered that on the 18th of October 2013, uh, we had an office call, the purpose of which wasn't recorded, but it was Conrad Bailey, number 10, from the Mod Main Building. And we see a very interesting gentleman, Lex Greensill of CE Greensill Capital. Now, I looked at that and I thought, um, I'm pretty sure that must be a hedge fund. Would that, that be sort of right for that uh, sort of absolutely. label? So let's have a look at this organisation. <clears throat> Greensill is on a mission to make finance fairer, ensuring that companies can fairly and affordably access the money they need to enrich employees. Now, if you're wondering what the link is between this and COVID, I can tell you that this company is now boasting it's helping to pay NHS salaries because really the government 
government can't keep up with what's happening. So a hedge fund has stepped in in order to make sure that people in the NHS are paid. And it's a fantastic organisation because it's got a mere £143 billion available and it started out of nothing with a poor young man who uh, was brought up in a farming family in Australia. But he's worked up this business since 2011, as you do, with £143 billion, all on his own from a little farm in Australia, apparently. Well, here's some of the directors. And it didn't take long before it got more interesting uh, because, of course, here's the same Right Honourable right, right Honourable David Cameron that was in government at the time that this organisation was sitting, having quiet meetings with people in the Ministry of Defence. I, I noticed you tripped over the Right Honourable with respect yes, to Cameron. Yes, I know. I, I realised, Mike, that I'd, I'd used those horrible words. And, of course, he isn't Right Honourable at all. But... Um, Mike, can you explain what's going on here? Really? Well, not really, but we can we can certainly shed a little bit of light on this. So here's Mr. Greensill himself, uh, Lex, and he's from prior to this Morgan Stanley, uh, Citibank, so banking guy, a senior advisor to the government, uh, but he also carries this uh, name, Crown Representative. So what is a Crown Representative? Here we go. Uh, Cabinet Office introduced a new approach to how government engages with its key strategic partners in 2011. It introduced the Crown Representative Network to act as a focal point for particular groups of providers looking to supply the public sector. Uh, Crown representatives cover all sectors of service provision, including small and medium enterprises, voluntary sector organisations, mutually owned organisations, large suppliers uh, and specific sectors. So let's look at the current list of uh, uh, crime representatives. Uh, Lex is no longer on this list, uh, but uh, we can see strategic suppliers from Accenture to Atos. Uh, I think Atos has just uh, got a, a coronavirus-related contract. Uh, Balfour Beatty, Capita, Babcock, they're all there. Uh, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, Fujitsu. So that explains why Ernst & Young's involved in certain meetings and so on. And we get down to, to one crime representative for mediums. Uh, small and medium-sized enterprises, one for local government association, one for voluntary community and social enterprise, one for consultancy, one for energy, one for insurance and risk management. So this is the type of thing that we're looking at. And David, uh, it struck me interesting calling them crown representatives because, of course, they're not being representatives. Uh, they're not being called uh, private sector representatives or or business representatives. They're crown representatives, and normally the term crown applies to people that are working for the state. Yes, yes, this this is very strange. I'd like to know more about this. Um, and indeed, uh, a wee bit more about um, uh, Susanna Mason. I see she's now left the British government and is working in the private sector in the uh, Middle East defence side of things for a company called PwC Middle East. Um, you might be uh, interested to know, Brian, uh, when asked what do very few people know about you, she said when she retires, she wants to train as a yoga teacher, but she's getting old and stiff. So this may be a forlorn hope. So that, that's, that's good to know. Oh, well, that explains why she's uh, working out UAE. She's gone out there for a bit of sunshine to help those old arthritic joints and to make a bit of cash based on the knowledge that she gained while working for the Ministry of Defence, uh, I but, would guess. Uh, but Brian, is there any indication why a hedge fund, Greensill, would be uh, putting money into the NHS? Uh, because it seems, and we, we, we've got more work to do on this, Mike, it seems to us that what's happening is that the government's not even going to be paying the public sector in the future. That's all going to be outsourced through to these immensely powerful banking and hedge funds. Uh, so what you're seeing is proper, uh, proper with a caveat of, yes, uh, democracy just being stripped and handed over to this totally unaccountable banking cartel. So um, there's been a coup. We've got a government of occupation. Who's driving that government of occupation? It's clearly the people controlling the billions and trillions in the uh, banking slush funds. Okay, well, um, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and that would be much appreciated. Uh, and David, uh, a quick advertisement, another uh, a video up on the Northern Exposure YouTube channel. Yes, this is an interview with Kate Shemirani, 
a really interesting interview and uh, it goes into amongst other things why she was pursued by around 50 policemen uh, down Whitehall uh, pinned against the wall next to 10 Downing Street uh, and then unarrested so uh, it's a strange story and I hope people will tune in and find out all about it okay and uh, a quick advertisement for another uh, protest Yes, this is the next protest that's happening at uh, Trafalgar Square, 19th September, 12pm, Trafalgar Square, London. It's uh, called Resist and Act for Freedom. Uh, lots of speakers and uh, it's about protecting our families, our elderly and our children. Okay, and just uh, briefly another reminder that uh, Ian Crean has announced uh, AV 11.1. Uh, details will be up soon, I'm sure, on alternativeview.co.uk. Keep an eye on that website for more details, but it will be taking place on Sunday the 1st of November, and it's an all-day event. It's going to be another virtual event, um, but we're looking forward to that. Indeed, we are. Um, so where does that take us? That takes us to Victoria in Australia, David, and uh, yet another day and yet another video clip uh, of police brutality. Yes, yeah, so this is people driving past. There's the sirens going uh, and the police have pulled someone over and they're watching this, this scene as four policemen surround the man on the ground. Uh, oh. He tries to get up and they oh. kick him in the back of the head. I mean, it's, it's, it's like watching a, fa a feral gang beat the living daylights out of some old pensioner it is horrendous and this is now this now passes for policing in australia it's shocking the people watching are shocked um uh, the reason we're not playing that the sound is that they're so shocked they're, they're quite incoherent because they can't believe what they're seeing so this is the level of police brutality we're now seeing in common law jurisdictions that were based on liberty and are based on this no longer and that, uh, that was quite an expression there, Brian. Well, yeah, because uh, when he kicked the man in the head, which you saw clearly, yes, I was shocked. And that's what the microphone picked up. But people want to understand what's happening to the police, whether it's in UK or America or Australia. This is the malicious use of applied behavioural psychology. These people are reframed to desensitise them. And that is why they're behaving so viciously. They believe anybody who challenges them is a potential terrorist threat. That's one side of the argument. And the other side is that their human compassion is stripped away. And we're going to be covering more on that. Well, have a look at these eyes and what this man has to say. This is James Brockenshire, Minister of State, the Home Office. I consider that coronavirus is having or is likely to have an adverse effect on the capacity of persons responsible for making national security determinations. To consider whether to make or renew national security determinations and that it's in the interests of national security to retain the fingerprints or DNA profiles as provided by these regulations. Well, to use a little bit of your technique, Mike, this is what he was really saying. What he's really trying to claim is that coronavirus has incapacitated the mental and physical ability of our national security advisors to think. So James Brockenshire is going to think for them. Uh, think of the repercussions of what this man is actually saying. But where is he saying it? Well, he's saying it in this uh, the coronavirus retention of fingerprints and DNA profiles in the interests of national security number two regulations 2020. Thank you very much for the lady that uh, discovered this and sent it through to us. Uh, what are they talking about? Well, they're saying that the problem is that they need to extend the period of, uh, in which they can take fingerprints or DNA profiles. The retention of the fingerprints or profiles under the national security determination may continue for a further period of six months, starting with the date on which the national security determination would otherwise have ceased to have effect. And then you see that this is all tied in with the Terrorism Act. So what we've, going, what we've got going on here is the deliberate ramping up again of the fear of terrorism. Uh, where the definition of that terrorism becomes ever looser and using it to bring in more police state powers. And if you're wondering where the quote was, it's at the very beginning of this legislation where he says, well, coronavirus has, has really stopped our security services from working. So I'm just going to pop him up on screen. This man is a puppet of the government. There's no question of this immensely dangerous individual. What is he doing? He's helping to build a dictatorship. And thank you also to our viewer that uh, 
found this man talking, Ollie Levinson, the head of London Countering Violent Extremism Program at the London Mayor's Office. And here he is quoted with a very interesting organisation called Strong Cities. I encourage you to have a look at that yourselves and ask what is this organisation doing? But this is what he said. While society has had to focus on the huge challenges posed by COVID-19, another virus continues to spread. Bigots, supremacists and extremists have sought to use the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic to peddle prejudiced views, dangerous conspiracy theories and even violence. If left unchecked, it could have catastrophic ramifications for London and cities everywhere. So this man is a fear merchant, Mike. Um, I'm going to adjust that quote slightly, David. I'm going to say bigots, supremacists and extremists have sought to use the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic to peddle statutory instruments, secondary legislation, which, of course, the vast majority of people don't ever get to see other than when Brian presents it on this news programme. Um, and certainly the, the mainstream media, nor the BBC, ever covers it in any great detail. Um, and of course, Parliament doesn't really get to scrutinise it in any great detail. So this is why this stuff gets pushed through uh, with uh, a rubber stamp. Well, maybe maybe he's talking about BLM and Extinction Rebellion, bigot supremacists and extremists. That, 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 would, that would be pretty, pretty accurate there, I would have said. I'll just Maybe add not. to that, uh, a gentleman over the weekend talking to me about what he was seeing going on in the country and what he felt was causing it, um, used the, the expression ideologically possessed. And I think that's exactly what the last two individuals uh, are demonstrating. They can't think for themselves. They're only thinking in terms of policy. Um, well, good news. Uh, just when you thought that... Uh... As that uh, sorry, just when you thought that, uh, as with the rest of the economy, terrorists were on the furlough scheme, uh, well, the government has launched a new eight-week communities uh, communities defeat terrorism advertising campaign in cinemas around the country. You're seeing it on screen at the moment. Uh, this is obviously in preparation for the end of the furlough scheme because uh, terrorists will no longer be able to claim their eighty percent of their salary. Uh, so uh, the government claims that this is actually. Uh, time to coincide with the Oscar season. I'm not entirely clear how that works, but anyway, uh, they're saying that uh, using cameras will allow, to, uh, allow us to deliver mes our messaging with fewer distractions, more impact, uh, and to more hard uh, to reach audiences, such as young uh, young people. Okay, uh, here's what, uh, well, Nick Basu, the Metropolitan Police Counterterrorism Assistant Commissioner said, uh, since launching the ACT Action Counters Terrorism Campaign, all forces have worked to show communities how they can make a difference. Uh, and uh, here's what uh, Sajid Javid had to say. The threat from terrorism is one of the starkest we face. And we've all seen the horrific consequences uh, of a terrorist incident. Uh, with the support of the public, our police and intelligence agencies work tirelessly uh, to keep our communities safe. So there you go. We've got to keep the, that in mind with with uh, the comments from uh, the Today programme this morning that uh, we've all got to snoop on each other as well, yeah. Brian. Um, so it goes on and even more of interest driving the fear agenda. If we've got to be fe fearful of coronavirus, we've got to be fearful of terrorism. Uh, we've also got to be fearful of the Russians. Uh, now here is uh, Strategic Command Defence Intelligence. Um, and uh, well, this is the first media briefing the defense the defense intelligence has ever given and it took place at the defense intelligence fusion center which you can see on screen there uh, based at RAF Whiten in Cambridgeshire uh, largely created from the staff of the national imaginary sorry national imagery exploitation center uh, this is uh, lieutenant colonel Hockenhull there he is uh, and uh, he was saying that the shifting global picture has changed the character of warfare in ways that will challenge the West to keep pace with adversaries who do not play by the rules. Global players such as Russia and China continually challenge the existing order without prompting direct conflict, operating in the expanding grey zone between war and peacetime. Now, this, of course, is just a continuation of the rhetoric that we've heard from other senior British military personnel who talk about the grey zone, talking about the fact that there is no longer any difference between peace and war, uh, that these are now the same things. It's a, it's, it's, and, and so on. But anyway, conflict is bleeding into new domains, he said, such as cyber and space threatening our cohesion, our resilience and our global interests. 
Uh, and he said, whilst conventional threats remain, we've seen our adversaries invest, adversaries invest in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other ground-breaking technologies. So be afraid. Uh, and of course, what have we got to be afraid of? Well, it's this, uh, because if you've been watching the mainstream media this morning, uh, uh, The Sun and, many, and The Daily Mail and many other uh, newspapers, it's all about Russia's Skyfall missile, which he was talking about during this briefing. Uh, and uh, well, he said that Moscow is testing a subsonic nuclear powered cruise missile system, which has global reach and would allow attack from unexpected directions. So apparently this, uh, what's being described as a devastating missile uh, would be ready to be launched by 2025. Brian will have the capability to fly around the earth for years and then fire a nuclear missile at any moment. Uh, from any direction uh, and I suppose that would be of a concern because uh, the radar systems and so on that we have, the tracking systems we have for these types of things are all pointing in one direction. Yeah, it, it's basically um, going to cause problems with the amount of warning time you get which uh, is usually the thing that makes people very nervous if they're not going to have warning time. This is why we have pointed out that the exercises right up to the Russian borders have a very much greater effect on the Russians uh, than uh, anybody else because they've got no warning time if that exercise was to turn into something real. But, um, you know, well, what can we say? It's ramping up fear. I was just smiling slightly because James Brockenshire MP has said that none of these uh, defence or security intelligence people are functioning because they've all been defective due to COVID-19. So um, the army guy that we saw there, unbelievably scruffy, I don't know whether you noticed his uniform needed yes. a good press, but presumably he can't think straight. David, we're just being given a, um, I have to use the, the expression, a dog's breakfast of policy and fear. This is everything designed to stop people thinking properly yeah i mean we're meant to be afraid of on the one hand a man going into a hardware store and buying a hammer oh the horror and and this is this is a this is a threat because you know a hammer you know and then then a subsonic cruise missile which is not really that much of a new technology is it and if it's going to be orbiting the planet uh, for 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 years waiting to do something we've got you know the royal air force the united states air force we've got lots of things that would tend to uh, interfere with that we don't seem to be thinking about anything that's real when we're not the, the analysis doesn't isn't based on real threats with with logical derivations of policy and of, uh, of, of a military response in terms of the defense system relating to a real threat. It's all about emotion and fear. And the concept of hybrid warfare means there's really no peace and everything is weaponized. Your universities, your, your religious system, your political system, your schools, everything becomes a battleground. It means that war becomes much more likely because we are the, the, the logic of this idea is that we go into Russia and try to destroy their society because everything's a battleground. I agree. I agree totally. And let's look at more of the madness and let's bring in yet another of Britain's MPs. And the man is Johnny Mercer, local Plymouth MP. Uh, well, let's have a look at what he's had to say. Um, so... Without people like you, he was referring to Professor um, Dr. Sir James Dellingpole, stop being a selfish C and put on a mask. Um, now, we were flooded, flooded with emails about this. Where's it come from? Well, Johnny Mercer put out a tweet and there it is. Without people like you, stop being a selfish C and put on a mask. And he's responding to... Um, uh, James Dellingpole saying that he was on a train and everyone in the train had a mask on. How did we win Waterloo? So this is the sort of language, utterly vile language used in public um, by this MP who tries to say that he's the voice for all the veterans in UK. Um, it's astonishing. Absolutely. Well, we decided we were going to see if we could get a response from his office. So we called his office this morning. Um, let's just hear if we can, what yeah. uh, came up on that phone call. 
soon as possible. Alternatively, given the high volume of calls we're receiving at the moment, it may be easier to send an email via johnny at johnnyforplymouth.co.uk. Many thanks. So we were very interested in that because it appears to us that probably his office is very busy because a lot of other people want to know why he was using such disgusting and disgraceful language. But of course, it gives us a glimpse into his mind. This is how he prefers to sell himself to the public. This is what was on the section about uh, Mr. Mercer on the government website. It was Johnny's displeasure at how his cohort of military personnel and veterans were treated by the governments of the day that drove him into politics despite having never voted before and what we've added is now he repays the veterans by branding them with this foul and abusive language and of course what is this man designed to do uh, well we're going to call him the immature Jack the Lad Pratt because that's what he is uh, but what does he what is he really doing well he's the puppet of the government of occupation and his role is clearly to discredit the veterans and keep them quiet and if our audience wants to know why this should be, just like to draw your attention to this little clip where David Ellis was interviewing a former SAS man, Rusty Furman. Just listen to what Rusty had to say. They're doing it or proposing. I, I, I'm thinking, are they looking for a reaction of somebody? You know, is it going to... And they, there is, there is a big reaction of the people that I'm dealing with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the more that we can get this out, the more people, our public, that get to know they about it. They need to take it. an interest in and this. Yeah. We've got a lot of veterans in this country, yeah. four million maybe, yeah. times that by their family, 12, 15 million. It's not a bad shout. And then well, there's, a, be there's happy. a balance of power there. Of course there is. So that's the key statement. They're discussing why the government doesn't tell the truth over matters, military, EU defence unification, the destruction of the military. But the key point being made by Rusty was, of course, the veterans are a power base, a real power base in the United Kingdom. And of course, what does the British government want to do? It wants to keep those veterans silenced to make sure that they can't act as that power base to overturn this blatant treason taking place. So what a saga, Mike. You've got a, an MP using that. I mean, the language is just unspeakable publicly and yet he's the same person that says he's standing up to represent the vet veterans just disgraceful absolutely so i just thought we would briefly have a look at a couple of the uh, responses to johnny mercer's tweet uh, as a veteran myself you've just lost the last thread of respect i had for you i serve to protect my country and keep it free not to see it have more and more pointless restrictions imposed uh, that's from hamish bell uh, then we got Francis War here saying, replying to uh, Johnny Mercer UK, no, the selfish seas are those MPs and others entrusted to safeguard our liberty and livelihoods who have enabled and encouraged the most savage attack on them in centuries. Uh, Lee Hurst, the uh, comedian, uh, saying, hi, Johnny, I'm a selfish sea too. Uh, and uh, Tommy Fox here saying this month is very important to the government. They have to keep up the fear to get an extension of their coronavirus laws They've got uh, people scared again, uh, and he attached a graph uh, showing where we are on the uh, yeah. in terms of the numbers of deaths. Um, so that couldn't be clearer, David. Yes, and isn't it interesting what got that um, aggressive, sweary response from Johnny Mercer? Um, James Dellingpole was suggesting there that the current fear-driven society would not be able to perform uh, the the heroic acts of resistance that we as a nation have done in the past. And that triggered that triggered Johnny. That triggered Johnny because I think somewhere deep down, Johnny knows it's true. I think that's absolutely correct. Now let's uh, move back up uh, north of the border, David. Uh, and uh, well, we've got a Scottish government release here, financial redress for survivors of historical child abuse in care. Yes, so this came out in August. Uh, and they have um, put forward a bill um, called the Redress Bill, um, and it seeks to establish financial redress scheme for survivors of historical child abuse in relevant care settings. So it's limited, um, it's not all, all survivors of abuse, um, but it's, it's talking about some form of redress. Now, uh, the UK government is also pushing this. They are also very proud of this. 
and the UK government have said, oh, look, we've got historic child abuse in Scotland. Um, GAD has played a key role in the Scottish government bill on historic child abuse. Uh, the bill looks to set up financial redress scheme for abuse survivors. GAD, GAD. What does GAD mean? Oh, it's the government's actuaries department. So um, they will know a lot about complex trauma and, and a lifelong um, uh, process of suffering from childhood abuse. Oh, no, of course they won't. They know about figures. Oh, well, what figures did they come up with? Well, they've decided that um, there's going to be £10,000 ex-gratia payment, and then there's going to be, um, the, the suffering is going to be assessed with an upper limit of £80,000. I, I would point out that some of the people that, that, that I've been working with here with the Fresh Start Foundation, we've, we've tried to calculate how many times they were raped as children. We, we reckon about a thousand. Um, so that would be, that would be if, even if they qualify, eight pounds of rape. We're, we're not very impressed with this, but it gets worse because not only is it limited to a, a total of 90,000 pounds, you have to sign another document. You have to sign a waiver. Redress payments will be conditional upon the applicant signing a waiver, giving up their rights. This is someone who might have been raped a thousand times as a child, giving up their rights to continue or raise civil actions in respect of the abuse against the Scottish government and those organisations that have made fair and meaningful financial contributions to the scheme. So this is a this is a protection. This is a, an, a, an immunity scheme for child abuse enabling organizations. This is horrendous. Now, um, the, 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 yeah, the, the David, sorry, one, sec one second, David. David, just wanted to come in there and say um, thank you for bringing this to our attention, David. Uh, the moment you talk actuary, what comes into my mind, of course, is people handling the statistics in order to give those statistics to the insurance companies, because ultimately it's insurance companies like AXA that are in the background desperate to uh, limit payments to do with these abuse payouts. Uh, because, of course, the amounts of money, if proper compensation were paid, if your whole life is destroyed as a result of rape and abuse, uh, then you should be dealing in terms of millions of pounds compensation for each person. And what is the real driving force behind the system? It's the insurance companies that are putting pressure on the local authorities to come to these sorts of agreements. And in the North Wales child abuse cases, of course, uh, that that this was happening did emerge into the public domain because uh, they were putting pressure on councillors who were actually trying to stand up for the children. So this is a money-making machine. It's a racket is what's going on here, a racket based on the abuse of children. Yes, and it's subsidising, it, not only is it capping the, 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 the compensation at a fraction of its, of its true value uh, or, or reasonable value, uh, it's it's subsidising the abusing abusing organisations with taxpayers' money because it, we've now hugely limited the amount of, of payout, and these organisations are just going to have to make some sort of meaningful contribution. It's 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 pennies compared to what they should be paying. It's it's horrendous. Now, uh, Wellbeing Scotland represents a lot of survivors of, of abuse in Scotland. Uh, they they give me a statement. Wellbeing Scotland are concerned that the redress bill makes clients choose between redress and civil action. Many clients have been waiting for years for justice and they are likely to accept the £10,000 payment as quickly as they can due to the ongoing stress they are faced uh, with many living and financial issues. Uh, a civil case could have damages much larger, uh, of much larger sums than £80,000 maximum through redress. Justice for a childhood loss through abuse and a subsequent lifetime impact can't be found through money for many, but it can assist in having some quality of life that was lost. The scale of 10 to 80,000 pounds will be dependent on the perception of how severe the abuse was. For some survivors, this can be impossible to speak about, particularly to a panel of strangers. Wellbeing Scotland survivors are opposed to many of the elements of the redress bill. The consultation requires many more views to be heard. There should be, not, there, there should be nothing that enables the organisations involved in the abuse of children to escape full justice. The waiver gives them the chance to do so. I think that is spot on and we also have a statement from an organization that i'm part of which is fresh start foundation 
um, and my colleagues there have stated that the Scottish Government's financial redress bill for those harmed by CSA is a cynical manipulation made in order to safeguard the Scottish Government and other paedophile enabling organisations from full liability for their heinous crimes against vulnerable children. It puts the criminals first and those harmed by CSA last and is so deliberately misjudged that it appears to be a humiliating and insulting power play rather than legislation furthering the public interest. There has been no attempt to resolve this challenge in the interest of those harmed by CSA, which primarily means preventing this from happening to a vulnerable child in the future. In the final analysis, it could be argued that this bill is designed to maintain the status quo, as it provides no incentive for the perpetrators to stop by drastically limiting their liability. I agree with that also. So this is, this is a stitch up. This is government protection for paedophile organisations. Um, and uh, I, 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 can, I can't imagine how those who have suffered through, through this and fought for years for justice feel right now. It is a, it is a terrible and cynical ploy. I'll just add that uh, I've recently been able to talk with somebody who is experiencing this, this very battle being offered money, which is obviously an insult to be offered the sums that they are. Uh, but on the other hand, that money desperately needed in order to be able to have some form of stabilised life. So it's very cynical, very calculated, very abusive. And if people want to get a better idea of how ridiculous these sums of money are, there is a scale of compensation payments if you lose a limb, if you lose a finger or a leg or an arm or a hand, there is a scale of money paid out. And if you compare that to the scale of a lifetime of, of uh, suffering as a result of abuse, then these uh, suggested payments are outrageous. I, I couldn't put it more strongly, really. Absolutely. Um, now, David, sticking with Scotland then, uh, and another issue, equality, diversity and inclusion. This is the University of Edinburgh. Quite a furore in the mainstream press today because uh, many people accusing them of, uh, of being uh, cards for... Uh, renaming the David Hume Tower? Well, I mean, I, th I think if, if the Scottish universities are going to abandon their great intellectual tradition, I think it's, it's worth noting the fact that they have surrendered this ground. Now, um, this is uh, the, the University of Edinburgh, right? So this was the, the very heart of the Scottish Enlightenment. And they announced that it is important that campuses, curricula and communities reflect both the university's contemporary and historical diversity and engage with its institutional legacy across the world. For this reason, the university has taken a decision to rename, initially temporarily, one of the buildings in the central campus area. From the start of the new academic year, the David Hume Tower will be known as 40 George Square. Um, it transpires that David Hume's um, view of other races, and David Hume was obviously 18th century, it's, it's, not, it's not acceptable anymore. So David Hume, leader of the Scottish Enlightenment, has been deplatformed after his death from Edinburgh University. It is um, that there, there are almost no words, but I would point out that there's something, there's something deeper happening here because th there are problems with the Enlightenment. There are errors in the Enlightenment and there are problems that the, 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 the postmodern movement were very, very astute in, in, in identifying and arguing against. This isn't just a whole BLM um, politically correct nonsense. This is an attack on enlightenment thinking from a post-enlightenment pool of ideas. The problem is that although the attack on the enlightenment is in many ways brilliant and in many ways accurate, what is being put in its place is hugely worse and extremely threatening to such things as individual liberty uh, and peace because it says essentially there is no truth there is no right there is no wrong there is only power this is the ideology of um, the boot coming down on the back of the head of that man in Australia uh, absolutely uh, now we're running out of time but uh, we did manage to get to it what's the latest on Boleskine House well, a couple of uh, updates. Firstly, a big thank you to all the UK com column viewers who put in uh, objections to the Boleskine House planning application. Um, and uh, we'll get to how that's gone down just in a minute. Firstly, here we see the Times um, from uh, July 20th. They, they had an article 
the restored Boleskine House is to promote the doctrines of sex, magic, occultist Alistair Crowley. I point out that this is in the Times. It's a prominent newspaper of record. This is in the mainstream. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see exactly what they said. So that the, the, the building had been uh, acquired last year by Keith and Kyle already, the founders and trustees of the Boleskine House Foundation. They say their goal is to open the property as a non-religious visitor attraction. So that's the, that's the official line, non-religious visitor attraction. However, in an article in the Gate, the magazine of the US Grand Lodge of the OTO, the trustees write, it is our intention to uphold the Thelemic legacy of the house. We hope it will serve as a great opportunity to educate the greater community about Crowley's legacy, which is, of course, sex magic and all that goes with it. Uh, they continue, Ms. Reddy, a London-based lawyer who specializes in international tax and trust, and Mr. Reddy, a US-born author of One Truth and One Spirit, Alistair Crowley's Spiritual Legacy, are both members of the OTO. One former Boleskine House Foundation volunteer who is no longer associated with the charity claimed that he and others had been told not to let the locals know of the connection to the secretive occult group whose members go through initiation rituals. The charity, he said, the charity is little more than a front for the OTO. So the Times is saying it's a front for the OTO. The OTO, this, this next slide is, is the book that uh, Keith Reddy wrote about Alistair Crowley's spiritual legacy. So we're talking about Satanism, we're talking about Alistair Crowley, we're talking about sex magic and all the things that go with it, all the ritual and abusive things that go with that. And we'll talk in weeks to come about exactly what Crowley was about. Now, the good people of the UK column and uh, the good people of the local community put in lots of objections to this planning application and they mentioned these things. Would you like to guess how this appeared on the council's website? Remember, we're doing public transparency. Oh, no, we're not. We have a strange um, IT glitch with lots of X's appearing on the screen. In fact, the the, the phrase which said, is a this is going to be a place of pilgrimage for Satanists and other followers of Alistair Crowley, was in fact redacted by the council. So although it's mainstream media and it's reported in the Times, the council, the Highland Council, does not want the people of the Highlands to know what sort of organisation and people are looking to, to regenerate this particular house. Isn't that interesting? Uh, David, very interesting. And we're back on the subject of the fact that our local councils, our city councils and area councils uh, will lie in order to cover up misdeeds going on behind the scenes. And this is really what the wider public's got to get to grips with. These people need challenging at every and every, every opportunity that comes up. Uh, David, just briefly, where is the planning application now? Uh, we believe it's about to go into committee. Now, the committees have all been disrupted due to COVID, so we'll get some more information in uh, for next week's news, uh, and I'll give an update then. Um, okay, and uh, we're going to end up with a little piece of uh, video clip from a delightful little Scottish girl. Now, David, this might need some translation for some people. I'll translate later for, for the English amongst you um, and for, in fact, everyone else in the world who's not Scottish. But this is a little girl. I take it from Glasgow. It, this was going viral around the internet in Scotland. Um, and, and she's talking to Nicola Sturgeon and she's telling Nicola Sturgeon exactly what she thinks of her lockdown policy and how it's affecting this little girl's uh, private life. It's uh, spectacular. How dare you? I could, I could go to my friend Cece's party. Like, I got Cece with a sleepover at, at, at the weekend. And I'm going to, I'm not cancelling it. Be rich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just got to love that. That's just beautiful. Now, for those, for those who who didn't quite pick up all of those words. The little girl was unhappy because her friend Cece is having a party and it's a sleepover and she's going to go to it and she's not cancelling. No, uh, and Nicola Sturgeon's not going to make her even though Nicola Sturgeon is a wee witch. I, I, I just thought that was, that was beautiful. I, I hope you all enjoyed that. Yeah, good. Well, Fantastic. we needed something like that to end on. But uh, final comment from all of us is uh, a lot in our news today. 
and, and we're going to say use the information get out there get challenging those MPs get challenging people in your local councils when they're not telling the truth or obeying the law it's what each and every one of us does that is going to make the difference and we'll say if you're watching from the veterans community we certainly hope that uh, the, the uh, vets will be taking on Johnny Mercer does, is, does this man deserve a post to represent veterans? Personally, I don't think so. He certainly doesn't represent me. We need to take these people on and deal with them in the appropriate way. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.